Hello and welcome to Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee with me, Ethan. And me, Bex. And it's been a very, very long time. The last time we were in the world of Twin Peaks and David Lynch, it was probably for our episode way back at the beginning of September 2017 to coincide with the finale of Twin Peaks Season 3. That was our five-hour epic. Yeah, and it took us a while to recover from that. <laughs> um, from the sounds of it, it took everyone a while to recover as well. <laughs> Um, and we've been busy, so if you've been following uh, the main Mothership Time for Cakes and Ale feed, you will have noticed that we've put out episodes in the last few months about a variety of topics with a variety of interviews. Um, in the main feed, we started our new Prisoner podcast feed, which is called The Tally Ho, and this is really an extension of that, and we're using it as an excuse to tie together our two favourite things, which are... David Lynch and Twin Peaks, and also Patrick McGowan and The Prisoner. We recently had the great fortune of spending an afternoon with Chris Rodley. Uh, Chris is best known as a documentary filmmaker. He's made many, many films over his career since the early 80s, including a recent documentary on Patrick McGowan called In My Mind, which is a really, really wonderful documentary. But the other thing that uh, Chris is known for is his two wonderful interview books Lynch on Lynch and Cronenberg on Cronenberg so given that we had an opportunity to talk to him we couldn't resist going from the world of the prisoner to the world of David Lynch and asking him all about his book Lynch on Lynch how it came about his thoughts on David Lynch's recent work including Twin Peaks The Return. Yeah and Chris is really ideally suited to be a person at the nexus of these uh, two topics. And I think if you do listen to the first half of the interview, which was in our Tally Ho stream a couple of weeks back, I think you'll come to realise that there are some really interesting parallels between McGowan and Lynch. And I think certainly if you haven't had a chance to dive into it yet, if you're a fan of Twin Peaks, we really think that the Prisoner is a show that you really might want to start watching and take a look at because I think it's just as innovative as Twin Peaks was. It was made 50 years ago, just over 50 years ago now, and it's something which changed the way that television was made. There are so many interesting parallels with Twin Peaks, but it does stand on its own as a really unique classic TV show which has influenced uh, not only television, but filmmaking and art for the last 50 years. And in this conversation with Chris, uh, we hope that you gain not only a better understanding of the world of Twin Peaks and Lynch, but also you might think it's worth dipping into uh, The Prisoner. And if you're going to do that, uh, why not join us along for our Tally Ho podcast, which is re-watching the series from the beginning to... So this is part two of our chat with Chris. Part one came out on the Tally Ho a couple of weeks back. Um, now, part one that came out two weeks ago does contain some spoilers for the finale of The Prisoner. So it could be that you've decided to skip over that one and come straight to this one if you haven't watched The Prisoner yet. Uh, if so, hi, welcome. Um, now, we do talk about Twin Peaks season three in this. It's There's nothing as openly spoilery I don't think but we we do mention a few things that sort of come in towards the end of the series so if you haven't seen Twin Peaks Return yet and you want to go into it 100% spoiler free then we suggest that 
you saved this interview until after you've had a chance to watch it. But we, we don't get into necessarily any major plot details. It's, it's more just as part of the conversation we do talk about some of the ramifications of things that have happened in the latest series. But that's enough from us. Here's our conversation with Chris Rodley. So we're joined again by documentary filmmaker and writer Chris Rodley, who joined us recently on our Tally Ho podcast to talk about The Prisoner and a documentary that he made about Patrick McGowan, and who this time has joined us to talk about Twin Peaks, David Lynch, and his book Lynch on Lynch. Hi, Chris. Hi. Again. <laughs> again. We'll just pretend it's not five minutes after we finish. <laughs> Which reality are we in now? <laughs> So how did you first go about approaching David Lynch to write the Lynch on Lynch book? I think it was just that I thought, I, I was aware that um, Lost Highway was being made. I'd done a book with David Cronenberg, Cronenberg on Cronenberg, which was a huge amount of fun. And uh, weirdly, it had weird effects on my life. There's no need to go into the detail, but, there, but it had really been very kind of... Inf- had been significant to me when doing it. And actually, if you make television programmes, documentaries, whatever, it's all ephemeral. It was more ephemeral than... Anyway, they passed by. And I, I, this idea of having a book on a shelf, a kind of solid thing you could just take down and look at it again, even if you were embarrassed by some of it because there it was and all this horror. Um, it was just something about the physical thing of doing a the book of doing a book a physical object was incredibly attractive and I thought well, who, who else is interesting well no one's interesting really to me apart from David Lynch and that's was a lot to do with the particular movies but it was because I you know having studied painting myself that he was a painter that he was a photographer that he had staged he'd done stage stage plays that he had done television he'd done a lot of things and so that was my interest that it was a kind of whole package someone who could do all those things and they all kind of lock down and make sense um and perhaps the thing that made the most sense weirdly was the painting i thought here's a guy who actually really it's all about the paint it's it all comes from the painting so for me it was like a slight return to my original passions and my first passions so i i can't remember how i got his number i anyway i just called up and um, there was a lovely lady who looked after him since past, died of cancer, a lovely lady, gay pope, I couldn't have done any, any of it without her, um, who looked after him, a gorgeous woman. And she she just arranged for a sort of call, conference call. And I just called him up and I just said, I want to do this book, but I, 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 I want it to be about your painting and your photography. And I think as soon as I said that, it was a done deal. Um, and he went, he just went, Chris, it'll be a blast, you know, and... Um, it was done. It was agreed on the phone. And I think that was it because it was about everything. The music, it wasn't just about the movies. Um, and so Faber and Faber said, yes, that was simple because they've done Cronenberg and Cronenberg. And um, they gave me a sort of pitiful, pitiful advance, and which is fine because film books don't really sell that much. I think Faber and Faber had never made any money on any film book they've ever done. And they've done loads apart from Snore the script for Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Whatever. And so, you know, I just, we arranged a time and it happened. I went over and uh, I did, I think, maybe 
40, I recorded that on that first week, about 40 hours of interview with him. And we'd, you know, meet in his painting studio and he, I virtually chain smoked at that time and so did he. Um, and we both sat and filled up an ashtray, drank unbelievable amounts of coffee um, and had a really, really good time. And I, you know, I blew all my advance. I didn't want to leave. It was just something about being, he's such a nice person to be with. It's, it's weird. And... Uh, I didn't find him at all strange. I, I, I we, uh, you know, it was a, very, it was very, very pleasurable. But the only downside of any of it is that he won't tell you anything. <laughs> so that is a problem. He won't tell you what anything means, and you have to get over all those problems. What does it mean? Uh, what does what about this? What about that? He'll t- talk about lots of things, but not about those things. So you end up talking about all kinds of stuff. I mean, I think it was. The meaning of you sort of have to find a way of providing them those other things. So I decided with every chapter that I'd interview someone who was relevant to that chapter. So you know, he opened up his address book, very open about everything. And so I spoke to um, Peggy Reevy, his first um, wife, who was with, he got pregnant at art school, and you know, all the kind of you'd think because of the complications of a razor head, and what does that mean? she was lovely as Isabella Ross. He just said he called these people and I either met them if they were in LA or I had long, lengthy phone calls with them. So it was a sort of breeze, really. And it was incredibly pleasurable. Um, it took an, a, a year and a half to actually turn that into a readable book because uh, you know, the transcriptions, my girlfriend listened to the transcriptions, they don't read well. And so you have to help people. You know. You don't put words into their mouths, but you have to make them more articulate. You have to make them a bit more articulate and a bit more because he goes off. You know, we all do. Um, so it was a long time, a long term, and a long time to get it right. And then when it was delivered to Faber, it was sort of sort of perfect, really. They didn't have anything to do. And they published it, and that was it. And then it was, but before we had to send. The, I do remember we had to send the. We sent him the galleys um, because obviously it's mostly in his own words, so mm. he has the right to. And I remember this awful telephone conversation because of the time difference anyway. But he just said, he'd read it and he said, Chris, they should call this book Horseshit on Horseshit. And um, I I don't think there was a lot in it he didn't like. Did I really say that? You know, it was a lot. So we cut. I mean, it wasn't up for me. You know, we aren't going to censor him or anything. He cut about 15, 20 pages of the galleys. I think he was just being hard on himself. You know, it was it was good. It's a good. It, it was. It was a, I think it's a really good book. But um, he's very, you know, uh, easily. He doesn't like. He doesn't like in being interviewed. He doesn't like talking particularly. For Twin Peaks of Return, he barely did anything except the most kind of cryptic nonsense. You know, so it, it's difficult for him to read his own what he says. Sometimes he thinks he can't even even said that. So he cut out a, a, quite a bit, not huge. When I think about it now, I think mostly what he cut out was the stuff about transcendental meditation, actually, and those kinds of things. I think at that time, it may be that at that time it wasn't particularly well known mm-hmm. that actually he did spend a lot of time sitting down looking at blank walls and stuff like that. So he, we had to cut a lot of the kind of mysticism and the, and the kind of um, TM stuff and the Dalai Lama stuff out. I don't know why, but I just did it because that's the deal. So I didn't challenge him. It, it it did it did seem slightly strange to me later on that suddenly that became a big thing and suddenly he's you know campaigning for TM to be taught in schools and 
setting up institutions to you know that he became very very upfront about it whereas mm. um, he seemed to have not been so sure to be so upfront about it at that time I don't know why that I've never asked him mm. and then I just you know weirdly I mean I've had I've I've God knows how many films I've made I've never had reactions to anything I've done like that book mm. I mean Faber and Faber loyally no, not loyally. They, they sort of automatically pass on all the correspondence they get. And I got from very scary things, like there's a single sheet which had sort of scribbles on it and like bloodstains and a kind of Laura Palm and horrible sort of things scribbled in the margins. It looked like someone's, you know, mind mm. on a piece of paper. That was, I didn't keep that. Um, to you know, people writing saying this book has changed my life. It's nothing to do with me. I can say that with you know, it's David really. But uh, letters saying, my God, you know, I've never. This has just changed my whole life. This book, and I'm thinking, I don't know how that could be. I mean, it changed mine, but not enough. So it got it. It's been very, very. It was very, very well received. We David and I never talked about it. Actually, you don't really talk to him about those things. I was very, very pleased when they said they wanted to up Faber and Faber wanted to update it a few years later. Actually, that's not true. They didn't want to update it. Cahiers de Cinema, who published it in France, wanted to update it. Faber and Faber, I don't think, could have given a shit. Mm. But that doesn't matter. And I think Cahiers said we've got to update it, and so they gave me a bit more money to go out again and just update it because it was then it was just the straight story of Mulholland Drive, mm. I think. But I, in the meantime, I'd had a heart attack and had lots of surgery and lots of things that, you know, it's, it's funny when you sort of meet people and you've had, some life has gone by. I'm actually rather conscious of that with David, a lot actually, more, because he's very conscious of those kinds of things. And so we sort of reunited and it was all lovely and um, we updated the book. Now, you know, I, I'd love to do it again. It's not going to happen because Kaido Cinema has been bought by some firm that makes soap sides I don't know, you know it's like <laughs> things have changed in publishing mm. now I don't think it's ever going to get updated which is a real shame because any excuse <laughs> but it would it maybe needs a whole new book because you know since since then his, his life and his work has changed so much mm. and his practice has changed so much I, I don't think it's so much as an update as a complete review mm. of everything because at that point he was still slightly defensive about his painting and his photography and all the other things he did because he didn't like the idea of celebrity artists and all that stuff even though I don't know why in his case it's so talented so he played a lot of stuff down but since you know with Inland Empire when I saw Inland Empire I I couldn't interpret the end sequence as anything other than a goodbye that that was him saying I'm not going to make movies anymore I'm going to get some as many people as I can who have been in previous movies over to Poland or to Łódź and we're going to it's going to be Cinnamon and everyone waving and singing and that's the that's the uh, that's the end of it because it's getting too difficult to make movies if you're like me so uh, and then he because he diversified massively and started doing you know m- music and a lot more music without Angelo Badalamenti um, his own music um, animation all kinds of little 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 films little funny things uh, because he just went became more true to himself and wouldn't probably deal with didn't even want to deal with CB2000 anymore whoever made the movies it, it was it became a whole different his life became very different I think I, it looks to me anyway um, and although as a consumer I'd love to have seen another David Lynch movie I don't know if there ever will be one um, because it's just maybe it'd be nice to think but it doesn't matter because we have Tim Peake's again but so I think maybe there would be a lot 
it was easy to track what he'd been up to, but now I don't know how I'd even begin to track what he'd been up to in those interviews. And then all that stuff with Crystal Gale, whatever her name is, you know, I mean, it's just tons of stuff because he can't stop doing things, stuff. So uh, I think an update wouldn't quite work. It would need a, maybe a total re-evaluation mm. of someone who is has that, what you might cornerly call a singular vision. It works in the movies for a bit, then it doesn't work in the movies. In American movies, you have to get finance on Europe. And then when they say, oh my God, what's happening? Is he abandoned the idea of a straightforward narrative? Yes, he has. Oh, um, then you move into your what your real passions are, which is sort of painting and all kinds of other things, but not movies because it doesn't work anymore for you. I mean, it's odd to think, you know, his, his narratives were relatively straightforward, actually, to begin with. I mean, Razor might be a weird movie, but it takes place in one play, in a kind of one space, the syntax of it. Whereas, you know, suddenly, I guess with Lost Highway, when we did the book, suddenly that really doesn't happen anymore. All those narratives are pretty straightforward until you get to Lost Highway. And then it starts to happen, <laughs> that thing, where a singular narrative or one universe or one sort of space and anything linear doesn't really in, I don't know if it doesn't interest him anymore it's just not how he not how he perceives things anymore and that's just gotten worse and worse or better and better depending so I, I, I don't know if he could really I mean I, I think he's always thought that doing Dune was a mistake but that certainly wouldn't be he could forget anything I mean Blofeld it's very straightforward it's not very nice but it's pretty straightforward they all are Except then you get to Lost Highway and things start to happen. And uh, I don't know why that happened that way. Mm. I mean, I think it's nice to see the straight story. See, you something like the straight story. I mean, I cried so much in that movie, and I don't know why people thought that was a surprise to me. That was, he'd always done that. Some mm. things in Elephant Man, unbearably emotional. Mm. I didn't find that out of uh, way of, you know, aberrant. Um, but I think now. And we could talk forever about why that might be. Things are, it's, it's very different now. I think, I suspect it's a lot to do with age in some weird way, or maybe not weird way, obvious way. It's to do with age. I remember Dennis Hopper once saying to me, he went to this party, it must have been soon after Blue Velvet. Oh, I don't know when it was, but they went to a party and, and, uh, and he said, Dave was such a downer, he's in this room. And he's saying, just think, you know, hundreds of years ago, there were people in this room and then we're in this room now, and in years to come, there'll be other people in this room. This kind of really, Genesis, like, lighten up. <laughs> like some view that of a kind of space that just, where people just pass through it, you know, and there have been people here before, and there will be people in the future, and we're just part of this. There's something about that little, silly little aside from Dennis Hobbit that says a lot to me about a kind of attitude to how he thinks life, what, what he would hope of life. And death. I mean, not because I don't think it's got to do with death. Just what, why you would hope for different states of being. So, n narrative isn't going to do that for you, really. You've got to find another solution to it. I don't know what those thoughts are, but I mean, I, I think once in a very early catalogue of his years ago, very early catalogue, he talked about um, George Burns dying, and he, it was just a description about how because he's so old, George, and just an old season pro about how. The pip, it was like in a peach, like a really, really ripe peach. And how the, the pip must have just come out really easily. There would have been no struggle. Just take the pip out of it because it's... And it's just that something to do with the idea of a kind of other 
existence and when you're ready to go and I don't know it's all it's all in my own mind it's a bit amorphous but I think it's it's a kind of now it's come down to a a kind of philosophy trying to work out a philosophy that works for you and well and is important to work for you because you've got to work out a negotiation a, a very important negotiation about a change the state a different state you're going to enter when it's not this state I did <laughs> <laughs> Given how his films had evolved after Lost Highway and how, as you said, it, you felt like maybe the end of Inland Empire was a sort of farewell, yeah. how did you react when you heard Twin Peaks coming back? Well, you know, <laughs> it's really torturous for me because I was, you know, we used to have Twin Peaks parties. I mean, everyone does weird things. We used to do, we used to have, we gather and then we'd make, we'd make, we'd have usually a kind of some... Something that evolved around mashed potatoes. So we then we make two piles of mashed potato with kind of river of gravy and, and <laughs> meat. Bank. We did some like you know, stupid things like that. Honest, seems odd, doesn't it? But anyway, um, and so we, we, you know, that was such a moment. That was a real old thing, and it was was a big bang moment for television. So we t- were totally and utterly obsessed. So, and I've never not thought about it. So when those first, you know, rumours. You know, it was impossible to, you know. First of all, I thought, how, why, what are they going to do? Because as we discussed earlier, if you create the, the landscape in which we now live, how do you then add to that landscape? What on earth are we going to do? And then you start thinking, well, what are you going to do? So I thought, I know what he's going to do. He's going to, you know, how, what's he going to do? Because Frank Silver's dead, died in that hospice in 95 or whatever, of age, whatever, I can't remember. It was one really nice ending. Um, so we've got to have Bob. How's he going to deal with Bob? And then so what? I, I think it's going to be Leland Palmer. It's going to be, it's going to be Leland's going to be in it. Bob's going to be in it. And so you start, you start mm. manufacturing all these series. Then you go online, guess what? You find it's all those debates have already started. Mm-hmm. There's a massive debate online of people saying, what's going to, what are they going to do about Bob? So, you know, I, like anybody else, was just incredibly, I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe it was going to happen. It was mm. just a glorious thought. And because also he, you know, he had once said to me, I don't think it's in the book, he always I mean it's not he, he doesn't mean it literally but that Twin Peaks is a place it does exist um, it always did exist it never stopped being there it's just there weren't cameras there mm. he just didn't have cameras there but it, of course it's going on and if we went there with cameras it would continue so I knew that that wasn't going to wear and all, wasn't going to go away and hadn't gone away with him and all the cynicism over Twin Peaks firewalk with me the people saying he was trying to cash in cash in on a, on a successful you know all that horrible industry cynicism and it just makes you feel dirty when you read it, you know, that people don't understand he loved that place and he loved that thing and it wasn't going to go away. And he loved Laura Palmer. He loved Laura Palmer. That's a slightly icky thing about the whole thing as well. He, That girl, dead girl, is, you know, he's always been in love with her. I think Mark Frost is less in love with Laura and more, her, his affection is more across all the other characters. Davis is definitely starts and ends with her. To the extent that now we know we, we have to work out how she's not even going to die in the first place. <laughs> but um, so he had never gone away for him. It's very alive and for anybody else as well, I think. So, and then I, I, I started, you know, these things started appearing and I saw some horrible thing when the announcement happened for some hideous American show. Someone said, Why do you think he's doing it? And the presenter just went like that. He just did this horrible, some disgusting man, you know, who I would have, you know, if handguns were legal here, I'd have thrown a bullet in his head. Just a, a, you know, this horrible Jet Money. That's all they understand. 
Um, so it was all very, very exciting. And then, um, so I just waited. And, and I think one, I think what was so extraordinary about the whole thing was, if you consider the world in which he made that first one, where there was no, you know, 89, whenever they started, I'm not sure, 88, 89. But anyway, all that social media stuff, all that way, I just then became fascinated how it was in total lockdown, how you couldn't learn anything mm. about what was happening. And considering everyone's got a camera, everyone's, and then when it started shooting, I thought, you know, we're bound to get some stuff. But, and then it became just this unbelievable phenomenon of how you couldn't learn anything. Yeah. And how do you keep everything... How can you keep so many secrets in the in the in two thousand and sixteen, seventeen, eighteen? How can you? How possible is that? And that became really exciting then because I thought, God, he's managed somehow, and he's talked to the people at Showtime somehow. There will be no trailers unless I make them. <laughs> there will be, you know, we're not going to tell anyone about it. We're not going to. I'm not going to give the, the scripts. Will not be electronically sent to anyone. There will be hard copies which will be sent by courier because I don't want a script even. I don't want people hacking. You know, he thought. It's so amazing. And it's incredibly encouraging that in a world where you think you have no control, just not even just artistic control, you have absolute control of everything. You've thought of everything. No electronically sent scripts, couriers, post, um, just their lines, which I think it's all true. It's, it could be urban myth, but it's a great story. No, they just get their own lines. Only Karl McLaughlin will have any idea what's really happening when they when they do them on step when they've done them we take those pages of the script we shred them we don't you know when nothing and it just got more and more exciting just got more you know it's like sort of like someone said you can't have something that's the trick right if ever i was to open a club i'd just put a, a bar i'd just shut the door and say no you're not allowed in and you've got a successful club on your hands and you, you just and though i don't know if you saw it there was a very very sad <laughs> piece of film someone must have been maybe it was at North Bend or uh, it was somewhere where the where the Laura's house is I can't remember the name of the town where the Palmer uh, residence is and someone had got a phone and they, they were obviously miles away and they zoomed in and there's a kind of porch and a bit <laughs> of light and there's this note with it it's Carmichael I can see Carmichael and I can see Cheryl Lee on the porch you couldn't see anything but the desperation it was so sweet in a way like I'm going to get something because obviously stuff had started to leak out and David had you know, made a plea him and Mark Frost and everyone had said please don't do this mm -hmm. and amazing but people didn't right is that what happened I don't know but they said please don't and people obeyed so it became a thing about the secret thing happening it was so you know it just got more and more like build up it's like you know Christ and then the first little trailer in fact some little trailer which told you nothing and there's one trailer I actually teared up. I don't even know if he made it. I actually don't know. I should have. There were so many things happening, sneaking, snuck out. I used to, anyway, it was it was just that music, you, you know, because that's all you have to do with it. You just have to have the bad lamenting music. You just have to have a couple of people repositioning Trim Peaks population, whatever, and pulling the, you know, you don't need much. <laughs> you don't need much. So that's why you know it's really good. You don't need anything. Um, it's like, you know, Andy Wall, you don't need anything. You know, wigs and glasses and a strap, you know, and that's it. It's done, done deal. But he, um, there, it was a little trailer and it was the Twin Peaks music, but rewritten for, I don't know, electro, purely electronic, I think. But anyway, there was a shot of Karl McLaughlin crying. I think he had this kind of camel, you know, thing. And I think, he, I think he said something like, you know, I can't tell you how long I've waited for this. That was just, that was it. And 
I don't know, I just, I thought I was going to cry. I just thought, mm. that's so weird. And it's just that kind of power. And it's a, you think, well, I thought you'd disappeared. Thank God. Thank God that someone, you know. So then it's just a challenge of what will it be? Mm. But for him, I think, you know, I knew, I mean, I suspect, I haven't spoken to him about it. I sent him an email just before it was starting to shoot. And he responded immediately, it was lovely. But um, just to say, I can't, you know, good luck and everything. But um, it was just what, what, what would, could he do? Yeah. What can you do? And he did exactly what you do, I think. Which is, when he's about Twin Peaks, how much of it took place in Twin Peaks? Yeah. You know, it's not going to be about, I mean, when, I mean, I had a sort of crush on Dana Ashbrook, actually, in a weird way. I just loved Bobby. I loved everything he did. All his physical, the way he walked backwards, like a train. <laughs> I mean, anyhow, the car, you know, everything Dana Ashbrook did was genius. I don't know where, I don't know if that's direction or it's Dana, I don't know. So anything, to see Dana come up, you know, it's got all these things when you see that actor mm. with grey hair and crying. And I don't know. I don't know, I can't even explain it, but why that would... How can that could possibly be? How can that be? I don't know. So, did you watch it when it was aired live over here? Yeah, like when yeah. it first came out. Yeah, you know, there was because it was the double episode. Yeah, actually, yeah. I didn't like. I didn't like it because it wasn't. I mean, I invited. I got all these. We got friends up from London. It's it's Twin Peaks. We can do. This. It's like reliving your sort of, you know, reliving the night, early nights. Cook a meal. I'm going to. We have to get some drugs. We've got to stay up really late. <laughs> and uh, and um, uh, and it was sort of a non. I think everyone, everyone else, including me, actually, was sort of a bit nonplussed by because uh, the expectation it was impossible. Mm. And but it, because it was no, nothing as you'd expect, you know, a couple sitting looking at a glass box or something, you know, I, it was it's a wrong-footed. You know, he, he can do. He just it just wrong-footed everybody, mm. didn't it? I don't know. Maybe not. But I didn't. It wasn't what I expected because I was lazy in thinking about it because I wanted the past. You know. Mm. I wanted North Bend. I wanted Snow Quarry. I mean, I wanted. I wanted all that cast yeah. back. You know, even though I tracked what was happening with who was being hired and who wasn't being hired, but even that was all confusing. Yeah. I mean, little Michael J. Anderson. You know, there was. You probably saw it. There was some. First of all, he said he he, he wouldn't say anything. He said he hadn't been asked. Mm. Then he put out some horrible statements about what well, that David Lynch. You know gets given all this money and he's not going to give any to me and so it was some bitterness and then some rant about how he'd raped his daughter and I don't know some real horror stories so that was all a bit started to be a bit horrible and then official things saying well he turned it down so I don't I still don't know what happened with little Michael but I mean on the evidence of I thought, why is he whining? Why is this, all this happening? If you just look at the movie, in Twin Peaks Five, Walk With Me, he says, when you see me again, it won't be me. So, it's there. It's, <laughs> you said it, right? It's like, I'll see you in 25 years. Mm. You know, you don't... I think that clever thing about David, which is one of the many clever things, is that you, you drop things in and you don't know where it's going. Of course you don't. Mm. You don't have all... You don't know what episode 26 is going to be. You mm. say something in episode one... I mean, I think it's evident with Marlon Drive, all those things that were dropped in. He didn't. He knew they might go somewhere, some of them. Uh, he never got the chance to find out because he had to make it take account of itself in two hours mm. and make it into a feature film, which was an exemplary kind of way of doing that. God, that's, the I think, my favourite work of his. But you drop things in, that might bear fruit, it might not. Mm. I'll see you in 25 years just as a, as a tink spine tingler, right? 
But it's also when you see me again, it won't be me. So I think he, I presume he meticulously went through all of that and thought, what's it telling me? Because that's one thing, you know, that thing about I'm just a radio, just tune in. You know, I look at some black wall uh, and uh, what's it telling me? What's it? I'm sure it told him lots of things like films do. They do do, do that. It's not bullshit. They do tell you stuff. You know, it comes back. It's not your not your doing. It's not your not your really clever. It's because the film does. You know, things start to scab up. You know, they kind of coagulate, and then they start to tell you what's necessary. You just have to listen. Mm. It's actually it, it, people don't listen. That's all. They don't listen to their own films, <laughs> and certainly executives don't listen. And um, so you just have to learn to kind of think what's it, what does it want to be. Mm. So I presume a lot of that stuff was came from. A lot came from Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, I assume, which is a bit hard on Mark Frost because obviously he didn't have any involvement in that. But uh, I just assumed, given the landscape 25 years later, it was going to be a lot darker, not so funny. Mm. Uh, there wouldn't be so many gags in it. It wouldn't be so much like on the air, all those kind of rather lame comedy things he did. Because um, his, his, his sense of humor is really terrible. Um, I mean, it's really terrible. Um, it's sort of childish, and uh, uh, that it would be a lot darker and a lot heavier, and because um, he could do that now, mm. and just and I think if for nothing else, that's just someone who just uh, you know it, I I learned actually at my cost a lot of the time that I I opened a lot of what they call director's cuts of films where I worked, ran independent cinemas. Well, so they had the I showed the director's cut of Fritz Lang's M which is um, eight minutes longer and well you know, don't need those eight minutes I mean mm-hmm. how many director's cuts are, are worse a lot actually or a lot are no better so you, it's not necessarily you can tr- trust these people but you can trust him you see that's you can trust him so what he wants to do if you just let him do it it, it will be magnificent it's mm-hmm. not it mightn't be easy I don't really care it, it, it there'll be unbelievable longueurs which is just so funny I just like that stuff you know but I understand why that's a problem mm. but he always did that you know have someone sweeping up or, you know some guy walking across a bank or, you know it's mm-hmm. painfully slowly you know going that's against age. old people it's ages I don't know it's not it's just an old guy it's just you know yeah. that's what life's like you know I, I see it on the street here yeah, a lot <laughs> a lot of them around yeah. so when you watch these first two episodes you know, when they aired, and you you get a sense of being wrong-footed by it just because of your own perceptions yeah, of what you think is going to happen. Yeah. For sure. But then also you realise that there's another 16 hours ahead after I know, that. I, know. I mean, at what point did you actually but, engage with it and think, this is going to be something unlike? Well, the thing is, I think as you say, that there was this kind of this constant... I mean, it kept up with the or the, the chat, you mm. know, which of course didn't exist when it was first year, but mm. all that kind of chat. So... And then I thought, well, actually, he did say at one point, I'm, you know, it's going to be like um, one, eight, oh, one big movie and we're just mm. going to chop it. I know that's not literally, it's not really possible to do it that way. But that was a kind of idea. Mm. So you don't, I guess, if that's the case, you don't judge, you know, an 18-hour movie by the first hour of the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be daft. Mm. Some things, the payoff comes much, much later. I mean, the five-hour Heaven's Gate movie is magnificent. The two-and-a-half-hour one isn't. Mm. It needs, you know, you could have... And the payoff is amazing. But sometimes you just have to wait. You wait for some things. Mm. And 
you know, waiting is very important. You know, he makes, he's really to play. And when we did, when he did Straight Story, he said to me, so, you know, it was all about being really slow. Because the guy's on a lawnmower, right? So it's got, everything's going to be really slow. And he was um, disgruntled when he, when he, when he, you know, they went, they did the trip. But even in a higher car, you can't, you know, in, a, in cars in America, you can't go, it just moves. It moves anywhere, a minimum of like five or seven miles an hour. You can't, literally can't slow it down. Take your foot off the pedal, that's your speed. He wanted to go slower than five miles an hour. But you can't. So that thing of kind of taking your time, you know, you just have to sort of remember. And and I think Nevins maybe had said, oh, this is like David Lynch on heroin or something. It was a bit silly, a bit of a silly comment, but, uh, you know, that it was quintessential, you know, I, I took that as a boast, and uh, that it was going to be everything he did, but more, more yeah. of that. So all the things he'd come to do, like any kind of narrative of straightforwardness, and you know, the, there was no longer going to be a, a space, a world. Mm-hmm. You know, it was going to be. Actually, it is. I think that became a bit of a frustration, probably. That wh- where are we now? Which world are we in? Mm. So I think, even though I think you were told right at the beginning that you know the, the alternate names for Laura and. Dale, remember Annie and whatever, you know, whatever the Richard and Lindsay. Yeah, Richard and mm-hmm. You know, that I suppose in a way there's still a bit of conservative reaction to that. I do, you know, I find some resolution quite satisfying. Mm. I do, actually. You know, I, I so to con- continually evolve like that so that now, oh, you know, we're, we're moving to a place where <clears throat> maybe she we can stop her even dying, or maybe it's not even her, she, it's not her now, they're not who we thought you were, she doesn't live here anymore. <laughs> What's going on? That might, I mean, I, I, I can understand why you might want to do that, but <clears throat> I suppose it wasn't helped by they kept saying there will be resolution, they kept saying you're going to find this out, you're going to find that. <clears throat> I never believed that, I never <clears throat> believed that. I think if you're in love with those people and those characters and those places where well, you wouldn't ever want to leave it would you just find another way of hanging around mm. like I did at his house doing the book how do I prolong the stay mm. and I'm hoping I mean I, I think there's been some rumbles about more but there probably won't be but uh, you know if, be, if you really want to push that I mean you just want to see what where you'll go now then okay mm. so now we end on a scream or whatever you know so now what's so really what what's next because how many more people are going to die before you can get that together? Yeah. I mean, it's strange because I think a lot of the anticipation and, and the support for the new Twin Peaks came from people who remember the original show. It's original characters, the fabric of it being in Twin Peaks. Yeah, That's why it was called it. And all of a sudden, we're transported to a world where there's a huge cast list yeah. initially, and it's clear that a lot of the names are recognisable, but there's a huge list of new characters. You, there was a hint, I think, during production that it was definitely going to be set outside of Twin Peaks, although they weren't really clear about yeah, how much. Not much. And on top of that, you know, like you said, the episodes start and immediately, I think the first the first uh, geographical jump is to New York, yeah. and then you have you know bits in Buenos Aires, and um, there's a whole Buckhorn plot. And I think, you know, it's a bold move to bring a show back that's built on the nostalgia of that original thing yeah. and just completely throw that out the window and say, no, Twin Peaks has moved on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and maybe it's a very Lynchian thing to say. It is still part of that mythology, but it's not the Twin Peaks that, that is still there after, you know, after No, years. it's funny because I suppose I always thought the film had been also very, you know, very good about 
the specificity of the location. So, mm. you know, David Lynch in New York as an idea doesn't really work for mm. me. If someone said that first, I thought, no, 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 no. New York, mm. that's Martin Scorsese and all those mm. tiresome people. Um, you know, he's in London. I mean, he's kind of in these places, which he's, he captures incredibly well. And who would think you could make an original film about Hollywood and Mulholland Drive until mm. you see Mulholland Drive? And you think, mm. shit, why, you know, that's like seeing, like, you've never seen that before. Mm. The most used strip of road anywhere. <laughs> I mean, I feel like sending him off to Joshua Tree if they make something there, you know, because he'd probably do something new with that. But I, so those ideas of other locations mm. didn't particularly, I can see why that's a problem because they're very hermetically sealed, these kind of places, and they're very particular, and he's very good with them. And he can, he can smell it, you know. So and the fact that, you know, in, in Twin Peaks, you know, the fact that Philip Jeffries was in Buenos Aires or wherever he disappeared, mm. you know, we didn't, I didn't really care about that. I just loved him coming down the corridor on the monitor mm. and then not being there and thinking, well, we don't need to go to Buenos Aires, do we? So it, that was, that did confound, I think, you know, mm. because you just wanted to see North Bend, didn't you? Mm. Snow, I mean, I've never been to Snowball. You know, I, I can't. I want. I just want to go there. I'm going to stay in that hotel because that's sort of so New York, other place, Las Vegas. <laughs> but I mean, I don't. I haven't spoken to him about it. I've not actually spoken to him about it. How that you can you can see the years of agonising in that. I mean, and, and trying to get that work that out. Do you think that the return is? Whatever it's called, Twin Peaks season three, or however yeah, it's yeah. um, Was it officially called the return? No, I, just, think, I think that was a. It turned out that was a Showtime marketing thing. Oh, whereas okay. now it's yeah. it's just Twin Peaks season three, or even just Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, sure. To what extent do you think that, yeah, the new season was uh, made for Twin Peaks fans versus being made for Lynch fans, who have obviously yeah. had a body of film and music and you know, you know, all of the sound design, artwork, everything. Yeah. I, I I sort of assume it was made for Lynch people, yeah. for sure. I mean, yeah. I don't because there's so many references to other bits of work yeah. and other other films and little. So I I I would think after being absent from small big, big screens for a while, that was for his that's for his people. Mm. I assume I don't know. I don't. I, maybe they're not even separate. I don't know how see people who have. I don't know how niche people get with directors you know mm. whether you can be a Twin Peaks fan and not really like straight story or I don't know I, I, I'm, it doesn't really interest me I just like the whole thing mm. so I assume that was for his I mean do you can imagine it's like being constant you know it's like being constipated for years and having a gigantic shit in a way so like now I can do this now mm. they've given me a, a, whatever the hiccup was in the middle and the negotiations I don't know what the nature of that was probably banal like money um now I can really do this, and I'm really going to do this. I mean, directing 18 is ins insane. Mm. I mean, I, I don't know. And I think he was sort of editing them as well. Mm. I think Dwayne Dunham uh, departed, not early. I mean, he, he, he went, and mm. I think David did the... I think pretty much David was doing the fine-tuning mm. on all of that. Mm. Um, so it really was lockdown. I mean, uh, and you've got to... You know, it's like take no prisoners. I mean, that's a real... It is. It's not. It's no. Not much different from McGowan. It's. 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 You know that kind of fallout thing. This is now. It's. Except it, he didn't have to rest control. He just had it all the mm. time. He never, as far as I can tell, gave an inch. Mm. You know, not in a horrid way. I mean, if you see him working, it's very. You know, I've been on a few film sets, obviously, and uh, 
you know, if you've got a David Cronenberg film set, it's he doesn't look like he's doing anything. I mean, in those days, he would be asleep in his room, and John Ward, his first assistant, first AD, was a genius, would knock on the door, ready for you, David, David would come out, sit on his chair, the video assist, he'd say, turn over, cut, go back to his room, go back to sleep. So, and John Ward seemed to be running the show to me, so in an innocent eye. But Lynch said, it's Lynch, you know. There might be 140 people, but he knows all their names, I mean, it annoys him there's so many people. Obviously, he'd like to be doing the razor with five people yeah. and take four years to do it. But, uh, you know, there, if there are 140 people, he knows all their names and he makes efforts with all of them. I mean, there's a guy who used to do his special effects, Gary D'Amico, I think, um, in the days when David had to have an effect in camera. It wasn't, it wasn't um, digital, no digital. You know, all in camera has to be, have to see it happening to make sure it's right. And Gary D'Amico had obviously... Um, I think he'd probably just put some, rigged up some sound speakers in for him in his home or something. And Gary's walking across, there's tons of people. It's massive set and it's really, it's the 13th week of the shoot and it's the, it's the, it's the nightmare shift. It's from five in the evening to five in the morning. It's worse. You think after 13 weeks and now we're on nights, everyone would be tired and fed up. Everyone's as high as a kite. And Gary Pine, he's like, hey, Gary, those speakers aren't going anywhere, man. Like, and so Gary knows he's done a good job. And he, it's, it's, not a, it's not a fake thing. It's a real thing. So he, he knows everything. He's got a handle on everything. It's, it's mostly very quiet. And you might see him go up to an actor and just whisper something in their ear. You never know. You never hear it. Just a little mm. direction. Something. I don't know. You never know what it is. Mm. They're not going to tell you. I don't want you know, say business anyway. And then, so it's a very kind of mysterious way of operating. Mm. So, and obviously you can have a huge cast. I had the return, I had 217 people. Yeah. Mm. And you get some dopes like John Belushi, you know, thinking some method prick or whatever. <laughs> oh, I think I'll just riff on this, you know. No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I, think, I think there was lots of things like that. One of the mm. people just sort of making shit up. No, there's a script. Because even though he'll respond to Accidents, or he doesn't believe in accidents, mm. and things you know, he'll be alive to things. It's he does, he shoots the script, mm. he absolutely he doesn't sort of go off on one. Yeah. So, you can, I can imagine with some of those people thinking, Well, I thought you know, I, I know more than you about this character because I had that character now. And, you know, how I mean, I, I was intrigued the little stories, there weren't that many actually, maybe oh, I didn't see them of some of the interesting things that mm. happened shooting, mm. but mostly people not not really getting it mm. that's not what you do you know you can go, go work for someone else you want to do that it's fine it's fine some you know, some people will cut you a lot of slack if you're Peter Sellers and you're Stanley Kubrick you'll just say oh, you'll do that you can play all characters that's fine um, but not David it's got to be I mean he make, he make Harold Pinter look like an improvisational master <laughs> it's all kind of like it's there it's all there say that if maybe we've got a bit of time at the end of the day, we could maybe do another one, but we probably won't. I mean, that's probably not easy to work with for some people. I can't think of I can't think of anyone who directs better than him anyway, so what, I don't care. Um, you, you could do worse and listen to him. Have you watched any of the, uh, the Blu-ray extras? I haven't yet. I've got them, and I'm, that's yeah. a treat to come. There's six hours of it. Yeah, right? yeah. And I can't wait. I, I, I tell you again, it's a, 
it's a silly personal thing, but part of the reason I, I, I haven't is because I was so desperate to be on set. I wanted to make a film about the making of it, you know, of course. And I couldn't get Showtime to you know, talk to me, and I couldn't, and David didn't want to know, he had other things to worry about. So it annoys me that clearly a lot of shooting was going on on set. And I'm just jealous. <laughs> I wanted to be there. Why is someone else there? <laughs> it's not fair. But there's a lot of it, I gather. Yeah, I mean... I mean him I... literally directing, you know. And he, it doesn't seem that he was coy about... Because he, everything was in such lockdown. There must have been some deal with, you know, none of it could be seen until after. I don't know. I assume. Because, of course, I couldn't have obeyed the, those rules because I was going to do it for British television. Mm. They'd have wanted it. They would have wanted it to go out at the same time. Mm. You know, so I couldn't have, I couldn't have fallen in line. Mm. But I know there's six hours of it and I can't wait. But I don't know what it is even. Well, it's actually quite interesting that... Uh, so, so I know that I think the most extensive behind-the-scenes uh, Lynch doc probably is uh, the documentary on that accompanies Inland Empire. So a 45-minute thing that goes that, where yeah. it's clear he had a small crew following him around. Yes. And, and this is very strange because it uh, it follows different aspects of the shoot in different locations and it's it's not shy about showing some of the behind the scenes discussions that were taking place right. the actual you know another camera on set seeing what's going right. on um, and it is strange that given that the whole thing was in lockdown during, you know that actually they have decided to release six hours of yeah. features where you know it's not it's not weird it's not obscure they're just showing how it was shot and him up you know arguing with things him often complaining actually that he didn't have enough time to yeah do what he wanted to do on set. I mean, he would have, I think he would have stayed at the, I think it's the, um, it's the fireman's palace mm. scene where he, you know, he, at one point he has, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a conversation about the fact that he wishes he could have had more time to shoot there because he yeah. wanted just to spend sure. time and see what would have happened, sure. etc. But it is unusual for somebody who doesn't really show that aspect of his work to have no. allowed the whole thing to be documented. And apparently the crew was there uh, for the whole thing, it was one set for the. It's just making me feel so yeah. jealous. <laughs> I mean, that, it would have been expensive to have someone from Britain there. I mean, yeah. I, I, don't, I can yeah. understand all the logistics of mm. it, and um, and, I'm, and it's going to make me furious when I see it. But I, I suppose he had the right attitude, which is, don't just don't show it. The only time he ever got angry with me was when Mary Sweeney showed me a scene on the, on her chem uh, from Lost uh, from Lost Highway. Just a silly little scene, nothing much. Um, and he found out about it and he was furious. And I think it's just, not with me, with Mary, I think. Mm. But I mean, I felt implicated because I, I, I'd walked into it innocently. Um, so I think it's just that thing about in advance. After the event, maybe it's mm. okay. It's just this thing in advance. Because mm. this horrible thing about, you know, you can see a trailer now and you, you know, you feel you've seen the movie. Mm. Um, and I think it's just a really clever thing about building up expectations. Clever, and it's also right, the right thing. Don't make afterwards we can do all this, mm. not before. Why would we want anyone to know about this, mm. about that that bit or this bit or that bit? They didn't mm. the first time, and no one was interested. Mm. I mean, no one was interested. I don't think hardly anyone even knew about it. I mean, that was the time he was, he was doing a lot of work because it was kind of like wild at heart was happening and his cup palm doors you know, and loads of activity in the industrial symphony and you know all these things that's happening but no one was really in those days you didn't bother did you I mean you, or it's like, like with the prison you see those people standing around in Portmore and two foot away from the <laughs> biggest star in British television 
smoking away, nothing, no one really, you know, no one's cared in those days. Now it's all, it's completely the reverse, so I understand that. And, you know, but he is, he really does crank that stuff up almost to an annoying level of a mystery, you know, the mystery. Like the whole thing, life's a mystery, this is a mystery, that's a mystery. Don't you want to see when you see something in a window, you know, what's going, what did you really see? What's that? You, know, you glimpse something. What's the mystery? It's all mystery, 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 mystery. Which is, um, as I say, in the end, sometimes I do quite like some mm. little bits to be not not some solving. Mm. It can be very satisfying. It's very, very clever. It doesn't have to be dumb. Mm. You know, it could be. Oh, and it might not be really the answer. I mean, that the end of Usual Suspects is very. That movie is very clever because is it Kevin Spacey? Is it not? Mm. You know, that kind of just if it's just a limp, mm. a limp that becomes not a limp. And it's enough. You know, you can. It still leaves you lots of room to manufacture a scenario in your head. It's not the answer, but it could be an answer, and it's just very clever, and nice. You know, continual. You know, to live constantly in doubt about everything. I mean, I'm sure he does. It's interesting that uh, for somebody who hasn't done much television, yeah. You know, after you know, after Twin Peaks, and obviously there was a chance that the the first half of the Marvel and Drive would have been a pilot for ABC, yeah. etc. Um, it's strange that he can come to it in 2017 and actually he's doing things in television which are probably as revolutionary as the original oh, Twin Peaks. Yeah. Right? And one aspect of it indeed is about the fact that you just don't provide spoilers. It's how you market these things, how you put them yeah. together and you can still have event television yeah. which people don't know about and it yeah. adds to the... Uh, yeah, it adds to the you know, it's good, isn't it? It's not yeah. like previously on. Those, anyway, those things never work anyway. Mm-hmm. Just, whenever they do those catch-ups, I don't know why they do them because they're impenetrable. Even if I've seen the previous reading, I'm looking. That doesn't anyone come to that? That's not going to tell them anything. So all that previously on and spoilers and this and that. I just thought to take on the kind of 21st century's mode of communication, you know, and challenges. Such a great idea. You think you can? You know, someone's going to be taking pictures on the set. Someone's going to be filming with a phone or something. And no, they're not. We're not going to. You know, we're not going to. It's not going to happen. It's like, you know, make kind of George Lucas Star Wars stuff like a leaky ship. You know, it's kind of like, it, it, it really is. Uh, yeah. So you, you're only left with why would you do that? But um, I understand why you would. You know, you don't want people, if, if you, you know what, I mean, I, I hate viewings when you do a documentary. You always get viewing, like within two, two weeks of being in the entertainment, the execs want to come in and have a look at something. Yeah. And, you, you know, th- that doesn't make any sense. You have to do it. But it's like, you know, novelists don't, don't say, well, let's see a draft of a novel and you give them it and say, well, this is kind of it, but there are no, there's no letter T in it yet. Mm. So, and there's no letter Z in it. There's, there's no M's. You know, it's not there, but mm. you can have a look. You, know? you don't want anyone getting bits of the information. You mm. want to hear it finished. Here it is, all polished and lovely, even if, you know, even if you were wrong. You... And I used to do that. I asked why. Actually, I was in about the other day. They thought I was doing nothing, but I just didn't want them to see what I was doing. And then when it came to the day, you produce the work, mm. don't you? You don't want them to see you standing there painting. Or you do it in private. Well, and I, made, I made a sculpture in my, in my horrible little flat in Bristol and brought it in. And they, I think they thought I was skiving. But I didn't want them to see me making it and say, well, what's that going to be? I didn't, I didn't think that was... A, very good idea so you you want to do it you don't even know what it is anyway and then you sort of bring in you know, there it is it sort of backfired because they sort of they were confused I think you could see it confused people mm. where did that come from 
well, I don't, you don't want to see people looking at his shoulder. It's horrible. Um, ideally, that's what you do. You, when it's done, you say, here it is, for better or for worse. Because it's it just that some people have, have a, the ability to change things on you. I mean, David Crane was saying, you don't, you know, censorship, you'll send him insane. I was incandescent on censorship. You can't, you don't send your kid to school and he comes home and they've chopped its hand off and the teacher says, well, we didn't like that hand, so we chopped it off. You know, you, you, don't, you can't do that. It's not, you can't do that. It makes no sense. So, you know, any kind of censorship like that doesn't make any sense. And I think the problem is, you know, in, in the world that Lynch and all those people move in, you know, there are people who have the power to say, we don't like that and we, we want to change it. I mean, it, it sounds very sort of arrogant in a way, but mostly you do know best because you're mm. with it day in, day out. Someone who just comes in to see it doesn't know it as well as mm. you. And by that stage, it's telling you what it wants to be. It's not you. It sounds bullshit, but it's not. It's, you, you have to be the guardian, right? Mm. You, have to, you have to draw the line and say, don't, you're not going to cross that line. If you cross mm. that line, you're in trouble. And we are the guardians, you, me and my editor, whoever it is, are the guardians of this film. Because this film wants to be like this. So, and we're listening to it, and it, that's how it's going to be. We are going to be here to protect it against you. And it's, it's always a bit of that. Mm. So the best you can hope for is a Lou Grade or, a, you know, or Alan Saad, who's going to kind of um, understand that. But you might, you could still have some good productive conversations with those people. I mean, in the studio system, it used to work. I mean, if Howard Hawks was making a film, and he, he did, if he didn't like the producer, and the producer came on set, as far as I can tell, he'd say, "Oh, you want to discuss some changes? Let's let's sit down and talk about that." And the producer would suddenly be aware that 160 people were standing around mm. doing nothing, and he was paying them. And they go, "Oh no, just get on with it," you know. Whatever your trick is, mm. um, but if you've got a good producer, you're quite happy. You know, I've had really good executive producers who have only made my films better. You'd have to be an idiot to turn down a good idea. Right? I mean, if it's a good idea, you're probably going to get the credit for it anyway. You go, okay, I'll do that. And um, I'm always careful to tell when they've said something and I've done it and it's worked. And so, well, that really worked. Thanks for that. I didn't like Adele. I never have. But that, that track really worked. <laughs> Thanks for that. Fantastic. I would never have gotten there. Um, so, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think Lynch has got a good balance. I mean, he so does know. You've got to have a really good. You've just got to be really on it to, mm. to, to convince him otherwise, or you know, you just got to be on it. Mm. Then when, when David Cronenberg did Crash, Paul, I met the guy, the exec producer. Something he didn't like. He said, "I wish I'd never mentioned it." He had a he had a seventeen-page fax, like the whole shoot roll <laughs> from Cronenberg saying exactly why he wasn't going to do that, mm. but exactly why. You know, well argued, articulate. If you can talk to Lynch about that, you could have. Mm. Be on top of it, really. Mm. It, there's so many parts of his process that are a mystery, really. I, don't, I think I don't know sort of how he does it, where it comes from. Mm. I mean, honestly, I don't. In that, someone, a very good film critic, a brilliant woman film critic called Laura Mulvey, who's an absolute. She knew everything about psychoanalysis. She knew more about it than Freud, and um, she spotted something in, in Blue Velvet. It was a. It was a. I, can't, I wish I could remember what it was. It was a tiny little. Thing, a tiny little offshoot of the Oedipus story, which I don't think I've never I've never known anyone know it even, and it's in Blue Velvet. Now, it's in there, but 
I know for sure he knows nothing about that. Mm. I mean, I don't think he hardly even knows about Oedipus. I mean, I don't think he knows about Freud. I don't think he hardly knows anything. You know, how could that be? How could something which actually exists in a in a in psychoanalysis in a in a tiny little dusty corner of psych? How could he know that? Well, he doesn't. And he doesn't know it, but he sort of knows it. So that's the that's always been the mystery to me. Mm. And I think he gets very upset. I remember, he got very annoyed when during Lost Highway when. Someone said, oh, that's a psychogenic fugue. And he, he went, what? You know, he, I think, oh, you mean, <laughs> there's a name for it. <laughs> and Because then he knew that everyone would say, well, that's a film about a psychogenic fugue and therefore it would be diminished and the, the, the way you could read it would become narrowed. It is a condition called a psychogenic fugue and that's exactly what happens to Fred Madison. But um, he didn't know anything about psychogenic fugues. Who did, actually? And it was like Isabella Rossellini saying to me, I never talked to him about Stockholm Syndrome. Why would I even, why would you? You know, well, I don't want to confuse it. He doesn't need to know that. I know, I know the character, what I have to do with the character. He doesn't, whatever, however he knows it, he knows it and it's enough. It's not a, so, you know, when you're in that territory, it's re- really interesting. You'd think it would be more, it would be more hit and miss than it's been. It's been mostly hit, actually. Mm. You'd think if you're sort of in that sea of, I don't know what that is when you're just tuned in. I don't know what happens when you look at a black wall endlessly and have a mantra. I've never, I've never looked into TM, but it works like hell for him. It works really well if that's what it, part of what it is. It's so, to me, it's no surprise that, I mean, it seems, it's sort of dumb, but he's, he, 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 I grew up with auteur theory and the director was, and then, then we got more sophisticated than that, we realised that wasn't the truth. And now when we come, with him, you, you end up full circle, you're back with, back with that idea, which is a slightly conservative idea, actually, a bit sort of predictable and, um, you know, boring in a way. But he is a genuine article, so, mm. and he's as, as inarticulate as all the great ones, you know. I mean, Hitchcock, all of them. You put, they're kind of a bit similar in that mm. way they're not going to be able to talk to you about those things although I think Hitch knew a lot more than he was letting on but mm. I think he realised it was smart not to let on I don't think John Ford had any idea what he was doing how brilliant unbelievable he had no idea he genuinely didn't have any idea I think fantastic but he knew but he didn't know mm. so uh, that's the exciting thing about all that stuff I think and that's what's exciting about Lynch you don't Forget about talking to the director and intentionality, and he, he he can't help you out. And if he could, he wouldn't anyway. So, all the stuff that happens, blogs and this and that, and about, you know, that's, it's everyone's kind of, you know, he's doing the he's doing his job. I think he's got everyone thinking, what's that? What's that about? What does that mean? What's that mean? And then you might stumble upon something that helps you. Mm. I mean, that's the great thing about all of that. I mm. think. I think I was very selfish right from the start. I thought if I talk to these people, they're going to be able to, they're they're going to be able to help me. <laughs> they're going to help me get from A to Z. They're going to say something that's going to help me live my life. So on a purely selfish level, it's great spending time with these people because they will, you know, I I was very you know I, my whole approach to disease and death. It's been if I hadn't met Dobie Cronenberg, I'd be a lot more fragile than I am now. You know. He helped me so much. He didn't help me literally, but just the things he said. Yeah. I thought well, that's gonna, that's I could that's useful. So in that very first film, Shivers, when there's a, in the doctor's surgery, there's a sign which says, "Venere, um, um, sex is the invention of a clever venereal disease." I thought, well, that's helpful. 
because if we just flip the point of view, <laughs> you know, cancer doesn't cancer doesn't know it's bad. Mm. If it, it doesn't know it's destroying you, it's just mm. doing its job. Mm. So maybe if you could befriend it in a way, if you could, you know, if you allow it in, if you come to some accommodation with it, you can live with it. Who knows? It's worth trying. You know, it's better than dying. You just invite it in. Don't get all brittle and middle class and crack. Just be smart and say, bring it on. You know, I, I understand what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing to me. You know, it's just people who make stuff, art, you know, can, they don't, it's not their intention maybe, but you, I just thought, the people who made the art that I like, if I talk to them, I'm going to learn something. Mm. It's that simple. And also I get to enjoy this work, but there might be something in there that will help me in some way, you know, make sense of this nonsense <laughs> <laughs> that to put up with and growing old and all that. Ah, ah. And Lynch has got lots of stuff mm. that helps you understand things in a weird way, even that's impenetrable sometimes. Mm. You get the you feel it viscerally, mm. that sort of makes that less frightening. It is strange actually watching, even watching uh, The Return when it was on. I mean, we were watching it, what, two, three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, of course. Every, and it's a strange time to be watching it, yeah. but almost the perfect time yeah. as well. Because yeah. you're in a kind of otherworldly kind of feeling of being you know, know. exhausted and you're watching it and it just makes you feel very strange things when you're watching it. You don't know where they come from, but it just, it kind of hits you. I really want to, I've got the blu-ray box as I said I'm, but I'm, I'm really stealing up to doing a sort of horrible binge I mean I don't know how I would ever get through it mm. but just I'm so you know just tempted just to look just be just be really hardcore about mm. it don't give up I mean as much as I can do it maybe mm. I have to do it in a couple of sessions but it's strange because in an era when you know there was this big move in the last few years to binge watching things on Amazon Prime or Netflix yeah. the new Twin Peaks it it does feel, even though it is meant to be sort of one continuous piece, it does feel quite binge-proof yeah. because you need to kind you of digest to, that I week know. and then kind of... I know, because you know, it's so after the eighth episode, you know, that middle episode. <laughs> that <laughs> the, the Big Bang. The lot of reaction I read said, don't worry, it's not on next week. You know, you've, got, you've got two weeks to absorb it because there's a break in the yeah, run. Yeah, yeah. You know, don't worry, you've got two weeks now to kind of digest that, whatever the hell happened there. But you know when it got when they got so cosmic, that was the sign. That was you know he knew that's the midpoint. Mm. That's that's really when you kind of you know whatever that was that sort of huge when it gets the, when things get that big and that cosmic. I don't know what you you know. Uh, it, it's so that I guess even for that alone that midpoint there. Mm. But that was, you could feel that, that was a plotted, wasn't it? And yeah. Halfway yeah. through, and that yeah. was going to really hit you with that. Um, and, uh, but it was funny, the rest of kind of, oh God, such a brain strain. And then all these, wasn't someone, someone was doing it in The Guardian, they were writing weekly, rather sort of stupidly though, but sort of cr slightly cryptically, and I'm not buying it, confused me too, kind of mm -hmm. thing, you know. That even on, on you know, so there was some, I think Empire tried to do a whole overview. Mm. Which and they've all failed because everyone just they have something you know you say is it this is it this is it, it could be all those things on only above, mm. so we don't know. It's strange. I think I think every everyone who watches it gets something out of it, but no one's going to get exactly the same thing. No, and actually, no. it's very hard even to articulate what you what you yeah. get if you're trying to describe it to somebody else. So there's always going to be this, you know, it's something that you experience, and you know, you can try and talk about it and come to a sense of meaning, but it's only of a meaning that might make sense to you rather yeah. than one that has some universal, yeah. this is what 
episode one is about two, three, four. Mm. I mean, I think he's really managed to cheat. You know, it's, it's unfortunate. It, it's not uncommon that when you see, sort of see a direct, like a film director's work, Billy Wilder went down the tubes, Clint Eastwood, oh, Christ, God forgive me. <laughs> What's happened to him? You know, that, that, that sort of age thing and things get, you see things getting worse and worse and worse. Mm. It's just been the reverse with him, yeah. I think. You know, it's really absolutely the reverse. You'd think it'd be something, if he'd have been like a, one of, one of those people who just sort of lazy and regurgitating and petering out it would have been like all in Twin Peaks and it would have been really sad and but you know that whole um, that, that whole ability to just uh, keep doing your best work mm. <laughs> so weird it's not possible it shouldn't be possible really it goes right against the grain sometimes people have little you know, little blips at the end they, suddenly they get better again you know it does, it's more often not the case though some some visual artists, a lot of visual artists actually, they they have their moment, and then they vanish, and they sort of come back, and you go, wow, they're back. And that, but that's a whole different. That's much easier business than running a film crew and a script, and you know. You think an element of it though is that he's remained prolific, but not necessarily as a as a filmmaker or no, TV totally. maker. You know, I mean, yeah. he's he's kept busy, but doing I art, music, totally. and yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know half of what he's done in the last few years. I mean, yeah. I, I, it's hard to keep up. Yeah. And I've been finding things very late in the day, you know, and thinking, God, you know, I didn't know he'd done that. And then, uh, you know, I, 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 would, I would have missed even more if I hadn't gone to the show at the uh, Cartier Foundation, you know, where at least they were showing some of the things he was actually working on. And uh, I think they had, they, have you seen Dumbland? Mm. That, yeah, I mean, Dumbland was showing that. I knew nothing about Dumbland. It was so it's so shocking. I've tried to show it to people. It just doesn't. They just mm. run out of the room screaming. I mean, they cannot bear it. I mean, I can see why. I don't mm. blame them. But even that was an example of him being way ahead of the curve on having these animations on yeah. his website and you yeah, know, you know, subscription-based entertainment. I mean, that was it was quite. That was what early two thousand. Yeah, maybe, it like must that. have been. Yeah, it must have been. But uh, yeah, it was way ahead of its time. And and that's I think a, a really strange thing: the fact that. His work is, you know, it's getting better, but also he just seems to remain surprisingly fresh every time he comes to it. Yeah, it's about, it's about, maybe that's part to do with the technology, you know. I mean, he did that, I presume it was a pretend, a kind of pretend, pretend interview where someone was talking about people watching movies on their phone. And it's a little thing, and he says, watching movies on your phone, get a fucking life. <laughs> and I thought, yay, because I'm against, but I don't think he meant it that I think it was a gag, mm. but I think when that new technology comes along, I did a, a series once called um, about pornography. It's called uh, uh, a Secret History of Civilization, six parts, and the, it it was predicated just on technology. Mm. So you know the printing press, photography, the movies, internet, and what was really clear by doing it that way was that you know the, the, whatever you think about pornography it gets re- whatever you think doesn't matter. It, it gets kind of reinvigorated by technology. Mm. So and they're always the first on it. They're the first. They're the first on DVDs, the first on Blu-ray, the first on HD, you know. So those guys in Chatsworth who were on it first. And actually, the, I think for Lynch, that, that all that, that kind of fantastic rush of new technologies and new platforms is perfect for someone like that because imagine if it was just the movies, 35 mil, I don't know, 185, you know, 235, uh, oh God, audiences. You know, I mean... I, uh, financiers, uh, stars. It, you, you know, it's, it's meant that he can apply the kind of things he's thinking about all the time and does all the time to a new platform. It's fantastic. So, keeping 
And a lot, he could have been really like a lot of people, just been frightened of that technology or kind of rejected it or thought. And I think he maybe did to begin with. Mm. It's like Neil Young moaning all about vinyl and then weirdly, you know, vinyl is just a fashion now. And then weirdly reissuing all his moves on vinyl, you know, just being a bit cantankerous. But I think, um, you know, when, when I think Lynch said, uh, did say to me, actually, I can't bear editing on Avid, you know, because you can't see. You can't see. If, you know, if something's supposed to be dead, you can't even see if the actor's slightly breathing. It's not good enough quality. And Lost Highway had seven cams, which like a steam bag, you know, around in a semicircle around the room, um, insisting doing it on film because of the quality of the image. But once the, you know, that new technology, the quality of the image starts to really improve I mean I think he was understandably a bit reluctant and cantankerous mm. to begin with it's not good enough it's just not good enough to look at it's not it's not pleasing enough mm. where's the texture that, that I love so much you know the texture of everything um, but when it gets that good then I mean there was all that nonsense talked about who's going to shoot the, the return on film I don't think that was ever was that ever true I never believed it mm. I thought that he why would he do that why would he mm. ever do that? You can't even find a laboratory these days. I mean, you can't get the stock. You can't find the people who process it. It's a forgotten, virtually forgotten art. Um, I think it's because he was horrified by, you know, from that first series, America jumped from kind of, they, they missed out on the golden age. They jumped from kind of primitive to a kind of, they went from shit to great. They didn't get the middle bits. So one minute they were NTSC, you know, 525 lines, rubbish quality to high quality, you know, HD stuff. They didn't have the lovely golden age like we had of DigiBeat and lovely kind of, you know, prop, proper stuff. Um, so I can understand he was horrified by, you know, television and all that stuff first time round when you're, you, you're talking about NTSC and you're talking about shitty American televisions and, and the picture not being the same in any two living rooms, you know, it's going to be different from the other. So if you're, if you're a control freak and you're saying it's got to look this way and it's going to be like that, but if you look through anyone's window in any house at any one time they was showing, you'd see a different image, virtually, in everyone's house. You understand what that lack of being able to control it. But now, again, I'm, I'm, it's a guess. But the, the, the fact that you can't, that's not the case anymore, especially with sound. I mean, Jesus, he's hard, you know, he taught me, he didn't teach me that, but he made me very aware that the heart, at least 50% of any experience is the sound. Why don't people take, pay attention to it? It's half the experience. Um, and very few no one does sound like him no one I don't know why they don't actually. it's weird it's annoying actually that they don't I went to see the opening of Lost, I went to see Lost Highway at BAFTA he would have had a nerve he would have had a heart attack <laughs> the projections didn't have the sound turned up at the beginning even I mean that must be his nightmare so it's like he's still that you know, um, deranged thing hitting and the there was nothing it was just silent and I'd already seen it Jesus thank God he's not here mm. I mean he would have literally had, had a meltdown but you know so so now with digital sound because you know now all that stuff is control. it's repeatable mm -hmm. more or less isn't it I don't know mm. I'm not mm. a technical director but it seems to me you can you can minimise all mm. those sort of terrible fluctuations from the old days and analogue and horrible tube tellies and NTS and 525 lines it doesn't have to be like that so I assume he felt he felt, feels comfortable about it. And anyway, Inland Empire was shot on a PD-150 or something, wasn't it? I and mean, it looks like it, anyway. Um, so I can understand he might have had some ambivalence, but uh, anyway, they shot it digital, right? So mm. that's what you do, because the mm. cameras are small. It's warm, everything about it. And I think that's, you know, he's not a fuddy-duddy in mm. that way. He's just not. It's like, ooh, a new toy. It's like a new toy. It's fantastic, that. 
He's sort of fearless. Mm. Even his music, I don't like his music very much. He's fearless, really. Let's do some, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. We'll get that guy in from, you know, and that, who's his lovely sound? He did Blue Bob with, lovely guy. John Neff, is it? Mm. Is it John Neff? Mm. I mean, it's mad, that stuff, really. It's pretty mad. He ain't no Angelo Badalamenti, <laughs> but then I have such a soft spot for Angelo. And Angelo was always really worried about David's words. <laughs> but some, you know, you, I, actually, I shouldn't ramble on, but you could do Angelo Badalamenti, if you look at any, if you listen to any other scores he's done, it's okay. Mm. But that, it's that thing. See, and that's what he, I think that's what Lynch does, really wanted. However they negotiated that partnership, you know, doesn't matter how you do it. Yeah. But it, it so works, obviously, for Angelo in a way that, you know, sitting down with almost any other director, he's never produced that kind of stuff. And I don't think it's a complicated thing, a complicated process that goes through. But it, you know, that's, I think, that's where he, that's his trunk card, really. You can sit, because people pay attention to it, you know. I remember on Lost Highway, I watched him, um, Balthazar Getty had made him a kind of mixtape, like a sort of love letter. You know, and people, it was a cassette, you know, it's all the mixtape. Made you a mixtape, David. They were out to shoot. And Scott, his first AD, said, No, way. and David said, No, I want to listen to this now. And, he, and they stopped, stopped shooting. I don't know, not for very long, but anyway, Balthazar felt loved, you know, and paid attention to. And Scott was pulling his hair out. He's the first AD, and it's a, the five to five shift, and we've got to shoot this scene. Why are you going off listening to a mixtape from the you know, one of the Gettys? You probably didn't like anyway. Um, but that kind of paying attention to every thing—it's—it's mm. it's exhausting. I mean, I've, I've done two short dramas. Never again. I hated it. I hated it. It's too much. It's too much. I don't know how anyone does it. Actually, honestly, I don't. It's appalling. It's appalling. <laughs> it's just, just when you commit suicide every day. It's so horrible. All these people, everyone's looking to you. It's like being a general in an army, like going over the trenches, doomed to be mown down. It's not a pleasant experience, in my experience. In my, yeah, it's not pleasant. <laughs> Anyone who does it that well. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, I hope he doesn't vanish for another few years. I mean, there has been this talk, hasn't there? Or maybe. And he's been saying, well, it's going to take it out. It'll be for years. Because that one took 10 or whatever, you know. Maybe not. I could see I could see another film. I, I hope think. now, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because in the same way that, you know, it could have been that you could view the end of Inland Empire as kind of... I think that time. was a farewell, yeah. wasn't it? I mean, that was a farewell. But then, yeah. And then, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's maybe, you know, in retrospect, you could say, well, he just wants to break from it to kind of find other things and maybe yeah. reinvigorate his interests. And then now And you could argue that that the return also, given that it, it, it has references to so many other oh, works, that, yeah. you know, that maybe it is also a summation of lots yeah. of things he's done. But I can also see him saying, okay, let's, let's go away, do some other things. Yeah. And then come back fresh to it. And it could even be that he does return to Twin Peaks. It could be that he returns to something else. I'm still surprised that he came back to the world of Twin Peaks. I know yeah. he was talking about it on and off yeah. for the last 25 years, yeah. but it's surprising that he would choose to go back. But I could see all kinds of things, you know, potentially. I mean, it just opens up all possibilities, having seen what is possible with his return. I mean, it'd be nice to think you'd go back to movies, but the, the movie landscape is so bleak now. Yeah. 
I think that's the problem. I mean, the main, the, the major studios have abdicated totally mm. from anything that's interesting. They've just gone. Uh, they don't do anything interesting at all, as far as I can tell. So uh, you wouldn't be going with them. So you'd have to find a sort of biggish independent because you know he needs money for, for what he does. Um, and it, it's just hard to imagine because also that thing, as we know, you know, he has to fall in love with an idea. Once he's fallen in love with an idea, he will pursue it relentlessly. But he's got to find that idea. Mm. And you know all those unmade scripts. Everyone has unmade scripts. Loads of them. Mm. Um, and dreams of the bovine, yeah, which is from point of view, of, you know, POV of cows. You know, I mean, the things he falls in love with are usually are quite mm. hard to imagine. Ronnie Rocket. There's a whole list of yeah. them going back years. You know, those things that are rather difficult. Um, so it's not going to be anything that easy. Mm. And I don't know. Maybe uh, it would be a kind of Netflix. I don't know. Maybe it would be a Netflix type. Maybe it, it would be a TV. A kind of streaming small screen outfit who would risk a movie, uh, but he's got to, you know, when he locks down on those ideas, they're really he's got to have he's got to have that. Otherwise, as he says, it's too painful to do it. If you're not totally and utterly in love with it, mm. why would you do it? Because it's too much. It's too. It's really hard work. It's too much of a struggle. Mm. I think it would be interesting to see him complete what could have potentially been a a Twin Peaks movie trilogy. Yeah, I'd like to I mean, see him kind of like you know, almost do something as as unusual as Fire Walk With Me, but in the Twin Peaks canon again. Yeah. But again, it's it's hard to know what that would be or yeah. how that would be or when yeah. it would happen, I think. I mean, I, I think that's one of the great movies of all time. It's a huge puzzle to me. Well, it's not a puzzle exactly, but the reaction to it was very silly mm. and, and kind of predictable. It's one of the most... It is one of the most depressing films ever. <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of... I quite like those kind of films. Mm. I mean, there's... Dennis Hopper made one called Out of the Blue. That's almost... There's, Totally depressing and nihilistic as that film. I mean, totally. There's no hope in it. Well, actually, because actually there is hope in Five Walls, but it's that bad. Mm. You know, that the picture it paints of its own mm. of America is so bad. Mm. Well, it's not just America, but it is a lot to do with America. It's so so desperate and bleak and awful, and it seems irredeemable. But um, you know, it's a magnificent piece of art. Mm. But I guess you know. But I like those kinds of things. But I understand no one else. Not very. There's not enough footfall for those things to justify <laughs> them. You've got to try. If you can get out of the blue, you've got to try it. Mm. It's a, you should check that out. That's a really not in a. It's not aesthetically at all common, similar, but it has a kind of real desperation at the centre of it. I don't know how David gets up in the morning. Actually, I mean, you know, I don't, it's quite. He knows how bad it is. You know, how really bad it is. Mm. And because some of his fears are so, you know, you know, not irrational, but his fear of electricity is real. All that, all that electricity stuff, that's real. I just have never thought electricity that way. Mm. If I did, I might, I might get that kind of, you know. It, it obviously worries him that this stuff comes into your house. You didn't ask for it. You don't know what it is, and it's piped into your house. Mm. What's it doing? And it can kill you in the right situation. You know, it's a kind of thing. It's like a, you know, I understand why he might be frightened of. Mm. I mean, I think he really is right. Um, or you know, it's such. A, it's it's like the it's like the like, a bit like the the David Cronenberg, you know, um, familiar disease comment. You know, he he assured me he, he was probably pulling my chain that the reason coffee gets cold is because if you leave it there, you know, it's aware that you're indifferent to it or you're not paying attention, so it goes cold on you. It's like a sort of punishment, and um, that could be true. I, you know, it could be true, right? I think there's, I, there's a, I think there's a word in German. I'm not absolutely sure. It's just a kind of, 
I can't, I don't know the word, but it, it, it roughly translates as uh, the malice of inanimate objects. You know, so that when you bump into something, it's not necessarily always you. It's the thing. <laughs> and there's no proof to the contrary, really. No, you know, and anyway, who cares? It's a nice idea. And the Germans are actually really good at coming up with words for things. There was one recently I read it yesterday. Damn, I can't remember. Ah. It, it, it's for it's for it's for people who put on weight. I think they've come up with the words for people who put on weight when, when their relationships fail, and it it literally translates. It literally the literal translation is something like sorrow fat. I mean, it's literally <laughs> it's literally indicates it implies a certain kind of fat, which is purely is a, is, a, is a, it feeds off melancholia. Mm. Or he'd and, come and buzz you. <laughs> you know, it's true. It's evidently true. I mean, a part of that is true. You see it. Or, or, but, you know, I, I knew... I mean, when I, I got... Soon after Lost Highway, I got dumped by my girlfriend. I had been 15 years. 15 years. Not married, but 15 years. Long time. Third of my life at that time. When I saw Lost Highway, there was something in it that was so chilling. It's when he, he's kind of walking down... It, the cor- this corridor is just black it's just darkness and he's sort of wandering around his own house mm. and it's all and that's exactly what happens and it, when she dumped me I, well, I we had a house together in North London and I couldn't negotiate I couldn't I, I found it difficult to negotiate literally in a banal way I couldn't negotiate the geography of the house I mean it sounds odd but I going down to I wasn't I knew where the kitchen was, but it was a surprise when I came upon it. You know, everything was uh, alien. Everything was not as it was. Just because she'd gotten said, I don't want, don't love you anymore. And so the geography of the house wasn't the same. He, he knows that stuff, obviously. Well, but I don't know anyone else who does know that. I mean, you see something so, um, it's so bang on to your own personal experience. It's chilling. You think, how would he know that? It's like, and, you know, I don't think it was a lie when all those, not a lie, it wasn't a fabrication when he said lots, he got lots of, you know, letters from girls who'd been, you know, abused by their fathers, like other Laura Palmer saying, how could you know that? What that's like? How could you possibly know that? What a 14-year-old girl, or 12-year-old girl, I don't know, whatever. What it's like. I, it's not your dad, it's someone else. You know, you, you, it's so hard to deal with that idea that your father's fucking you that... You, you you create another thing. It's not him. It's someone else. It's Bob. So it's simultaneously a kind of... It's simultaneously absolutely accurate and real, according to people who've had that... Some people who've had that experience. Mm. And it's also a great devi- you know, cinematic device. And it's a great narrative about an evil spirit. But that's actually sort of how it is. That's the reality of it. So it's, mm. That's what's strange to me. It's peculiarly absolutely real that's the trick you know and I think it's like once upon a time in the prisoner that's real it might be a set with a psych around you know a black psych and two people going at each other for eight days but there is some truth there's some things in that that are so true Mm. and yet it's all it's just artifice it's all sort of artifice rocking horses and dwarves and feasting like and whatever it's all artifice it's all art but it's absolutely true don't, I mean, there's things in that. I, I, I'm, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't even like to be in that state. Mm. 
when McGillan keeps going five, 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 you know, and you, he's, it's frightening to look at. It's frightening. The power of it's frightening, and the truth of it is really chilling. So it's that thing when that great thing when it's art. It's only art, but it really is life. And there's all those cliches about, you know, artists having to give up a, night, a life and, you know, they sacrifice their life for their art. But all that cliche, you know, you're going to be vast suffering Van Gogh or Sam Peckinpah or treat everyone that, you know, whatever. But the art is the life. They're not giving up life. That, that life is in the art. So they don't have to give anything up. It's in there. That's where it is. That might be tough on husbands, wives and girlfriends sometimes. But you didn't ask for that, did you? You didn't. They're weird people, aren't they? I mean, I, I have a bit of it, so I know a little bit, but why would you need to do that? Any of it? Why would you need to do any of it? Some people actually just have to do it. They don't, you know, they they have to represent life. I don't, you know, they have to repackage it and play it back to you, which is sort of odd. Why not just have a life? But actually, people who just have a life are really boring. That would be some guru somewhere, sitting on the mountaintop, experiencing life. It's of no use to anybody except him or her. Whereas if someone has some problems with it and repackages it for you, makes something out of it and shows you it, then that's useful. Not some priest of a misty mountain thinking, I'm I'm all right, this is lovely. Well, that doesn't really help me, does it? Obviously, you're not having a good time, but you've made something <laughs> that has helped me. It is that bad, isn't it? Let's all get together. And, you know, I mean, that's useful. I think. That's a useful job. Yeah. And uh, um, I don't know why they don't get valued more, in a bigger sense. Artists aren't ahead of their time. They're just in their time. Everyone else is struggling. Everyone else is behind <laughs> the times. So that's when they get it right. That's why it works, actually. You think, yeah, that's right. Why are we still buying antique furniture? I don't know. We're in something like the past. Stupid past. <laughs> We're not even in the present. I think I always thought the kind of narcotics, anything like drugs or anything like that, they, they can only really be attractive because they put you where you are. You take most of it, most you spend most of your life in the past or the future. Why things thinking about the past things you didn't do or worrying about the future? You're not really ever where you are. Being in the present, and I think that Lynch is definitely right, and he does that through however he does it, TM. But I don't know. He's right there, right in that moment, all the time. Is that do you think what makes it, or well, something that connects with people? The fact that it makes people feel the present. I, maybe I mean, maybe uh, it could be. You know, rather than reflecting on yeah, past well, events yeah, or the future, it basically. Yeah, it makes you connect with what's... I mean, what's I think he's, you know, I don't think he thinks a bit in terms of, you know, theories of time, but obviously he's gotten into that, mm. whether he likes it or not. That's mm. where he sort of is now, in that idea of kind of what time, you know. And so that's an interesting, that's a very productive era. It should be, shouldn't it? For cinema and television, it should be, mm. it's perfect for time. Mm. So why is everyone treated in such a linear, boring fashion? <laughs> it's that, it's made, it's cinema and television and stuff like that's made for that mm. time. But you can't, so it's quite hard to do that in other things. But it's made for it. So having any banal idea that time's kind of linear, I mean, that doesn't work, does it, really? I mean, it doesn't. It actually doesn't work. Mm. It, uh, I don't think that's how it works. I don't know how it works. I'm not clever enough. But I know it's not to do with calendars and 
dates and uh, linear kind of construction. That's just I mean, that's a construction, obviously. So it, it can't be that way. But uh, I, I mean, I'm, I really I'm, aren't clever enough to work it out. And I don't think I don't think it's been worked out particularly. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think film can can help you understand some possibilities. Actually, I think I didn't understand some possibilities until I saw performance. Right? So that, have you seen you've seen performance? Mm-hmm. Right? When I first saw that, I knew that some of the problems with it was that I realised afterwards that it implied that things. Everything was happening all at once, all times. Mm. So, and you sort of plop in and out. So you can have Mick Jagger spraying his, you know, a, cut, a shot of Mick Jagger spraying, you know, his, his bedroom red or whatever it was, black. Just move, move it up there. It's all, it's all happening at once. It's just where, where you're looking. So it's mm. like a painting, and I'm looking there now, and I'm looking there. And so you make, you can kind of construct a kind of narrative out of it. But it's all sort of happening at the same time, mm. which is a fantastic idea. It's all happening at, at Every, all the time, everywhere, and that's there's definitely bits of that in Peace for sure. Mm. Obviously, I mean, it's like, there are great little moments in Firewall with Me, which are like that. You know, I think when Annie turns up in the bed and turns mm. around and says the Good Dales in the in the lodge, write it in your diary. Mm. Then, you know, that lovely, it's such a lovely idea. It's very simple actually, mm. but don't see it anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> well, why is it not happening? It's not a it's not a big ask, is it? I mean, the, world, the industry could take more than one David Lynch, really. It yeah. could. There might not be more than one. But what it's decided is one is enough. <laughs> I think that's what it's decided. One yeah. Lynch is enough. So if you try to do something like that, they go, well, that's a bit Lynchian, because that's the phrase now. Mm-hmm. It's a bit Lynchian, you know, he's doing that. You say, well, that's, that's only one person. You know, we, we've, got a, we've, got a, we've got a million Ridley Scots. I mean, jeez, why can't we have more than one David Lynch? Mm-hmm. Please. It won't be the same. Mm. You could have just allow, allow for a bit more. We did someone the oh, it's David Lynch, that weirdo. Oh, it's not very helpful, is it? I mean, it's it's helpful for Showtime's marketing. You mm. know. Oh, here he comes, that weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> but you could do with a few more weirdos. You've got a mm. bunch of weirdos. I don't, they're probably out there. I just don't know where they are yeah. because they're not getting. Well, maybe they're. On the web, I know. Maybe they. Maybe I just should check them out. I suppose that I would be the myth, right? That's where they are, all working away. I think people would like to think that's how it is, but I think it's. You know, maybe it's just the fact that was Lynch or directors like him. You know, were they able to take a path that allowed you to still, you know, retain your own individual way of doing things? The fact that you don't have to be a filmmaker, but no. as you could film could be considered another aspect of just being an artist. Yeah. But, you know, so, so maybe he's allowed to, you know, he's allowed to forge his, you know, his way, but actually in the studio system, maybe if you're a filmmaker, you're expected to churn out yeah, you know, every three years. And, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Not the right thing to do, but uh, yeah. it's remarkable how rigid maybe a system, the yeah, system is to produce very, you know, very boring, yeah. boring artists. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people who just deal with that community all the time, I mean, yeah. that's not good, is it? It's yeah, not yeah. Why would you want to do that? Yeah. I suppose because he David does all different kinds of people because he does all different kinds of things. Yeah. So he's not like some cliche in that movie, The Player, where everyone's sitting around and they can't talk about anything but movies. <laughs> Surely we can talk about some of that movies. No. And everyone laughs. laughs. It's funny. But, you know, the gruel gets very thin at that point then. It's just, it starts feeding on itself. Yeah. It's just so, it's not a very substantial meal. What you yeah. come at the end is very thin gruel with a yeah. community that only deals with itself. Yeah. And with its own practices, and so it's not. 
it's not informed by it. Nothing comes in. It's just getting thinner and thinner and thinner mm. and thinner and thinner. I think, for sure. I mean, John Ford was not just a filmmaker, you know. I mean, he was, you know, he was all kinds of things. These people had full lives, I think. They weren't like cinephiliacs who just drove to the studios every day and mm. talked movies all the time. And, you know, they were sort of, they had lives, I think. I think, I think they did, actually. They sort of had lives. Um, and now it's just a very thin gruel. Sometimes it's all right. I saw Baby Driver actually recently, and it's such a sort of—it's just a movie that talks about other things all the time. And it was all right. Strange, there are so many films now which just riff on yeah, yeah, on other films. I, but I think it's not that fulfilling. Oh, no, it isn't. I mean, it, 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 I, for me, it sort of really started to get bad with Quentin Tarantino. Who did, you know, he wasn't even looking at other films. He was, he was looking at video. I mean, he was running a video, just looking at video. It's got even worse. Got even thinner. <laughs> so he's just looking at videos. And, I mean, yeah, I think he's a good, good filmmaker, but it's very. It, that seems to me a bit thin. I think you go around a few galleries and you know, I don't do some other stuff. Do some other stuff. It's, it's not. It's, I don't know. It's not very. Um, I don't know what it is. It just doesn't. It's not enough in the end mm. for me, I think, really. Mm. I mean, if you go to, you know, I've been lucky enough to go to all these people's, a lot of people's houses, all the old, the old guard, you know, and they were very cultured, you know, they knew a lot about a lot of stuff. Yeah. Some of them had real day guards in their house because they made so much damn money. <laughs> How nice. <laughs> Peter Bogdanovich had all this, you know, Jesus. But they had sort of knew about a lot of other things, mm. not just the damn movies. Mm. And how do I shoot a three-way, three guys with guns, always three guys with guns pointing at each other, and how do I shoot that without crossing the line? You know, I, oh, it's so boring. Oh, why no, you can look at that video and freeze frame it endlessly. Look at that John Woo movie. See how he did, just copy it. That's what I would suggest. Next. I'm off. <laughs> so, thank you, Chris, for joining us for a couple of our podcast episodes for spending time talking to us about uh, The Prisoner Patrick Gouin Twin Peaks The World of David Lynch it's been absolutely wonderful to have you on and thank you for giving us all your time great pleasure I hope it goes down well yeah and a reminder that uh, In My Mind is out on DVD and Blu-ray and also the wonderful Lynch on Lynch in addition to your other books as well is available (laughs) in all good bookshops (laughs) probably not certainly I have to say (laughs) I uh I got a thing from Amazon saying, you might be interested in, and it was Lynch on Lynch. But, <laughs> you know, this horrible thing. You know, I said, yes, I am interested in it, yeah. I wrote it. I mean, I, I don't understand. How do these algorithms work? I don't understand it. Anyway, anyway by the way. <laughs> Thanks a lot. So huge thank you again to Chris for joining us. It was really wonderful to talk to him about the world of David Lynch and Twin Peaks as well as the world of Patrick McGowan and The Prisoner. Yes, please go and check out his prison documentary, In My Mind. And of course, I'm sure if you're listening to Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee and you're a Twin Peaks fan, you'll already have a copy of uh, his fabulous Lynch on Lynch. If not, do get a copy. It's wonderful. It covers everything in the Lynch back catalogue up to, well, I think in the revised edition up to uh, Mulholland Drive. Um, it's just a fantastic book because it's it's got interviews with a real artist who rarely gives interviews, never discusses the meaning of his work, but in this case uh, really 
somehow Chris managed to get some wonderful insights into uh, Lynch's sort of work ethic, uh, how he goes about creating things. I mean, again, uh, David Lynch is never going to tell you what something means, but he can be uh, coerced into talking a little bit about um, sort of how things come about. And I think, you know, it's a really wonderful book. Um, if you get the Criterion editions of Fire Walk With Me, I think the chapters on relevant parts are often reprinted from Lynch on Lynch. I mean, it is the standard Lynch Bible. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA or on Facebook, Time for Cakes and Ale, and the website is timeforcakesandale.com. Yes, please subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, tweet about it, tell everyone you know. We're kind of back now. I think really this year there's going to be a bit of cakes and ale, a bit of cherry pie and coffee and a bit of tally-ho as well. (laughs) So all these things are going to be going on and you can uh, listen to them all just by subscribing to our mothership feed, Time for Cakes and Ale. But although this has been the first time for cherry pie and coffee in a very long time, hopefully we'll be back on track with some really exciting things coming up over the next few weeks and months. But for now... That's it from us, and we'll see you next time, whether it's in the world of cakes, ale, cherry pie, coffee, or indeed in the world of the prisoner. For now, goodbye. Goodbye.